You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year. We'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you. And pitching a no-hitter is impressive, isn't it? There have only been 318 no-hitters pitched in Major League Baseball history. And that may sound like a lot, but there have been roughly 236,000 Major League Baseball games played. And so a no-hitter is pitched roughly every 740 games. That means if, if you were to watch every game of your favorite Major League Baseball team, you would see one no-hitter roughly every four and a half seasons. They're rare. But while pitching a no-hitter is impressive, a no-hitter will not win you a baseball game. And the minor league Rocket City Trash Pandas learned that the hard way this year when they pitched the first no-hitter of either the minor league or the major league season and yet lost to the Chattanooga Lookouts because they scored seven runs. I mean, the The lookouts didn't get a single hit in the entire game, but they scored seven runs in the seventh inning off of five walks, three batters hit by a pitch, one wild pitch, and an error. Now, you can't measure pitching success, obviously, by pitching a no-hitter. Because although you got to pitch to the entire roster, you got to get everybody out and not allow a hit— If you're walking five guys, hitting three, throwing a wild pitch in a single inning, and not a successful outing. And so, although they threw a no-hitter, they still lost the game because they allowed seven runs. Pitching a no-hitter, it makes for great headlines, but it doesn't tell the whole story, does it? And I wonder if that's one thing, maybe the only thing, that pastors have in common with pitchers. That sometimes the headlines don't tell the whole story. Because just as there are stats to try to evaluate pitching, there are stats commonly leveraged to try to evaluate pastors. You know, what does church attendance look like? What does giving look like? What are are baptisms numbers look like? And, And we can try to evaluate pastors or churches based on the headline. But sometimes the headlines don't tell the whole story. The, the same is true, isn't it, with, with other, other Christians. The same is true when you try to evaluate yourself, because I know you're probably like me. There are times when you look at your own life and you wonder, like, hey, if I was going to get a grade for how well I'm doing in following Jesus, like, what, what would it be? And you wonder, like, how am I supposed to evaluate myself? Because I know that I'm supposed to be doing things for Jesus. I'm just not sure what those things are supposed to be. There might be some things that would make for some great headlines. But they might not tell the whole story. And so how are we to evaluate pastors, churches, other Christians, and ourselves? That's the question the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 to address. 
And so if you brought your Bible this morning, and I hope you did, I want to invite you to turn with me there. If you've got a digital device that you can use to pull up the Bible, I'd encourage you to search for the ESV, the English Standard Version, as that's the translation of the Bible I'll be reading from this morning. And so if you search ESV, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you'll be able to follow right along with me. And I'm going to begin reading there in verse 1. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And this is God's word to us today. And here in these verses, the Apostle Paul is trying to help the church at Corinth look past the headlines so that they might better evaluate pastors, guys like Paul, churches, other Christians, and themselves. And in order to trace Paul's argument this morning, I actually want to start at the end of our passage and kind of work our way back from the, the, the bottom of the text back up to the top. Because there in verses 8 through 13, what the Apostle Paul says is, hey, when we tend to evaluate others, when we tend to evaluate ourselves, the first thing we often look for are signs of success. That's the first thing we look for, signs of success. Because in school, we're evaluated by our grades. In sports, we're evaluated by our stats. In business, we're evaluated by our sales. And so it's only natural when we look to evaluate a pastor or a church or some other Christian or ourselves, what we look for are some kind of sign of success, some mark that we can measure them by. And that's creating a, a, a lot of problems for the church in Corinth as they consider the Apostle Paul. You see, uh, Paul had planted the church. 
He had started it. He'd taught the church at Corinth everything they knew about Christ. But then, once the church had been established, Paul had moved on to plant another church in another region. And now, the leaders who are at Corinth are pointing back to Paul and saying, does this look like a guy who has God's blessing? Does this look like someone who has God's favor? Because uh, look at him. I mean, he... He's weak. He's got physical infirmities. He's sick. He's poorly dressed. He doesn't have a home because, well, he's, he's just poor. The guy has a terrible reputation in the community. I mean, you, you see all this there in verses 8 through 13. They say, look, th- this is who that guy is, but look at us. I mean, us, we... Paul is poorly dressed. He doesn't know where, where his next meal is coming from. We, we've, we've got fashionable clothing. We're feasting on the finest of foods. We're rich. Uh, Paul, he's got a terrible reputation in the community. Everybody loves us in Corinth. Uh, Paul, he's weak. He's got physical infirmities. We've been blessed by God with good health. You see what he's saying there in verse 8, very sarcastically. Already, you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. Here's who you are. Here's what you say about yourself. And yet, look at us. And what Paul is pointing out is that the believers at Corinth are being tempted to believe in a prosperity gospel. They're being tempted to believe that if if you put your faith in Jesus and you do the right things, you will receive God's blessing because of your goodness. And they're being called to evaluate Paul's ministry based on his personal circumstances. And the the leaders there are saying, would you rather have our life or Paul's life? And Paul is saying, you better be careful. You better be careful how you evaluate me and how you evaluate your church leaders and how you evaluate yourselves. Because sometimes the headlines don't tell the whole story. And look, the church at Corinth wasn't simply tempted to believe a prosperity gospel back in the first century. We're tempted to believe in it here in America in the 21st century as well. Not just in the ways in which we think of the prosperity gospel preachers, but in our evaluation of pastors and churches. Because we can say, you know what, if, if a pastor is doing what he's been called upon to do, if a church is a good church, here's what's going to happen. Attendance will go up, giving will go up, baptisms will happen at a record pace. And yet, as Paul will go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there are some underhanded ways to inflate those numbers. Now, you can draw a crowd by telling people what they want to hear. And so imagine if we were to try to evaluate Jesus by those metrics that we often use to evaluate a church. I mean, Jesus, he wasn't able to develop some broad donor base from which to run his ministry. He never ran a successful GoFundMe campaign. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. Jesus was homeless because Jesus was poor. And not only that, I mean, think about the trajectory of attendance with Jesus. 
mean, there are a lot of people who hear Jesus teach, but as Jesus moves towards the cross, what happens? Almost every single person who heard Jesus teach turned away from Jesus because of what his teaching asked of them. And so attendance, it had a clear pattern. It was declining. And so if you simply looked for the headline in Jesus' life, if you looked for the headline in Paul's life, you would be mistaken as you made your evaluation of them. But not only does it work that way in evaluating churches and pastors, it also works that way in evaluating ourselves. I mean, what so often happens, we, we think to ourselves, oh, I don't believe in a prosperity gospel, and yet the Spirit of God, I pray, will convict your heart this morning. Yes, you often do. Because when life is going well, when your health is stable, when you're prospering financially, when it feels like life is just kind of coasting on easy mode, you tend to think, well, I'm doing really well. I've got God's blessing because of my goodness. And the reason you know that's how you think in the good times is because you know what you think in the bad times, don't you? Uh, when you're struggling with your health, when uh, money is tight, when when you feel like, man, everything in life just seems to be against me, we start to think, don't we? God must be against me. God must be punishing me because of something I have done. And we think that God is against us and that what the circumstances in our lives provide is a window into an evaluation of our job as a Christian. It's a prosperity gospel. And, and if we're not careful, what will happen is, is we just kill ourselves comparing ourselves to others. Now, I, I can't call you out by name this morning, but some of you, you know exactly who you are. Like what you do is you look at the lives of other people and you are just reading the headlines of their lives. You, you see how their children are doing. You see how their finances seem to be uh, doing. You, you see the, the health situation in their life. And you conclude, they must be better than me. Because if I was as good of a Christian parent as them, then my kids would be turning out like their kids. If uh, I was a good enough Christian, if I prayed the right way, God would hear my prayers, he'd answer my prayers, and my health would be more like theirs. If I was a, a better Christian, then I would obey God and my bank account would look like theirs. And what you're doing in comparison is you are reading the headlines of others' lives and you're thinking that tells the whole story. And you evaluate them and you evaluate yourself based on those signs of success. But the headlines didn't tell the whole story for the Apostle Paul. They didn't tell the whole story for Jesus Christ. And the headlines don't tell the whole story for you and me either. And that's why Paul writes there in verse 9, look at it. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And what Paul is saying is that God allowed enormous suffering to be poured out upon the apostles in order to shake you and me out of the foolishness of comparing ourselves to others. That through the suffering of the apostles, just like the suffering of Jesus Christ, we might learn... That life is not measured. A, a person's walk with Jesus Christ isn't measured by their 
circumstances in life. That's not how it works. We shouldn't look for signs of success. Because once you understand that, if, if you evaluate yourself by signs of success, what's going to happen in your life is you are going to be filled with pride. That's what will inevitably happen. That's what Paul argues in verses 6 and 7. Look at those verses with me. In verse 6, Paul writes, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, if, if you evaluate yourself by signs of success in your marriage, in your parenting, in your finances, you are going to be puffed up. You're going to be filled with pride. You're going to be filled with self-righteousness. Because you're going to look at somebody whose child is really struggling through life, and you're going to think, oh, if that was my kid, if they had parented like me, that wouldn't have happened. Or you're going to look at, at someone whose marriage seems to be falling apart, and you're going to think to yourself, you know, if, if that was me, if I was in that marriage, there would be less drama and there would be more delight. Your spouse might disagree, but, but that's your evaluation. You're going to pass by someone on the street who it is clear they are struggling financially, and you're going to look down at them with disdain because you're going to think, if they were like me, if they worked like I did, if they believed in Jesus, if they obeyed him like me, then they wouldn't struggle financially. They would prosper. You see, if you believe that everything you have, you have earned, everything you have has, has come by your merit, it is going to fill you with pride and with self-righteousness. But Paul says, don't you see that the Bible it has a whole different message. The Bible says everything that you have, you've received every bit of it. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. And so what he's telling them there in verses 6 and 7 is that, look, you've got to understand that everything you have is a gift of God's grace. And that's important for us to see because we talk a lot about entitlement in America and if there's one thing that can get my blood to boil, it's when people feel entitled to government programs that will pay them not to work. You know, pr programs that will, will provide for them while they're not being productive. They just feel entitled to it. It causes my blood to boil. And there's something right about that. To be outraged at that sense of entitlement. But, but you know, there, there's another kind of entitlement that, that sometimes gets smuggled in with the American dream that I don't see quite so clearly, tends to slip under my radar. Because what the American dream says is that if, if anyone works hard enough, if, if, if anybody works hard enough, they can make something great of themselves and, and they will prosper financially. Now, there's, there's a lot of truth in the American dream, isn't there? And man, thank God for the freedoms in this country that make upward mobility so accessible to so many. We ought to 
Thank the Lord and praise God for those freedoms in America. Amen? And yet, here's what's so subtle about the American dream, if we don't catch it. What the American dream says is that the reason some people flourish and other people flounder is all because of what they have done. All because of their work and their merit. And so if I have something and you do not, it is all because of me. And Paul says the Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible teaches that everything you have, you have received. Everything you have is a gift of God's grace. And so think, for example, of the Israelites as they're taking hold of the promised land. Like they got to work to take hold of the promised land. Like people are dying in war to take hold of the promised land. And yet when they get a hold of the promised land, God warns the people of Israel. He says, look, fellas, when you enter into the land, don't get puffed up with pride and think to yourselves, it is by my power and my might I have gained this wealth. Because yes, you fought for it. Yes, men died for it. But it is a gift of God's grace. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar. He looks one day out on the kingdom of Babylon his kingdom, and he says to, my, to himself, look at my great kingdom that I have built for my glory. And you know what the Lord does to him when he speaks those words? The Lord makes that man lose his mind, turn into a beast that is eating grass like an ox, so that he and his kingdom might learn that it is God who rules over all, and God gives power to whomever he chooses. Everything we have is a gift of God's grace. And and the danger of the American dream is it can kind of subtly smuggle into our lives a belief that everything I have belongs to me. And I am entitled to what I have because I have worked for it and I have earned it and it is mine. And if you believe that everything you have has come to you by your effort you're going to hold on to everything you have really tightly. You're not going to be a very generous person. If you believe that everything you have, you, you have earned, you're not going to be a very sympathetic person because you're going to look at someone who is struggling in life and your heart is going to be hard towards them. You're going to think if, if you were just more like me, you wouldn't be in that mess. But don't you see here how Paul is saying that understanding that everything that you have in your life is a gift of God's grace. It is the antidote to pride and to self-righteousness. That that when you understand that every good thing in my life is a gift of God's grace, man, man, it'll, it'll cause you to open up your hand and to be generous with the things that you have. Because all that you have, it's been given to you anyway. And he who has given to you can give you more yet still. It means that when you come across someone who's really struggling in life, you can have a sympathetic heart because you can think, yet but for the grace of God, that's where I would be. And so if you're someone who is struggling to be generous with your financial resources, if if you're someone who is struggling to have a a sympathetic heart, you just feel kind of cold-hearted, and you can join me in just praying each and every day, Lord, would you remind me, would you remind me that everything I have Every good thing I have is a gift of your grace. It's a prayer we need to pray more regularly in our lives. God, what do I have that I have not received? I mean, how different would your life look if you were born into a different family 
born into a different country, born into a different time. God, it is your grace that has provided every good thing in my life. And once you see that, it'll cause you to evaluate others and yourselves, not by looking for signs of success, but looking instead for signs of faithfulness. Notice here in verse 2 what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Uh, but Paul is saying, look, what you measure me by, what you measure a church by, what you me measure other Christians, what you measure yourself by is, is not by signs of success in your life, but instead by faithfulness. And so a good pastor isn't one who has these signs of attendance or baptisms or giving. A, a good church isn't one that has those stats. A good Christian isn't one who is healthy and wealthy and, and seems to be at ease. A, a, a good Christian, a good pastor, a good church is one that is faithful to their Lord and serving Him joyfully and willingly. And that's why Paul says there in verse 3, he says, hey, with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. He says, for I might not know of anything wrong in my heart, but that doesn't necessarily acquit me because it is the Lord who judges me. And that judgment will happen on judgment day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and the things that have been done in secret in the dark, they will be revealed. Because some, sometimes even faithfulness can just be a facade. And so the Apostle Paul, he says, uh, look, you got to understand, I don't even judge myself. And if, if I can't even judge myself correctly, how much less so should we think that we're going to judge others correctly? Now, that doesn't mean we never evaluate others. I mean, in chapter 5, Paul's going to be clear that the church needs to take action because there's grievous sexual sin among its members. In chapter 6, Paul's going to be clear that the church has the ability to evaluate in, in disputes among members and render a judgment. In chapter 11, the chapter dealing with the Lord's Supper that we read from earlier, Paul says we have to judge our own hearts before we take the Lord's Supper. So it's not that we never judge, we never evaluate anyone or anything. But what Paul is speaking against is the kind of, of mindset that can begin to creep in, whereas Pastor David said last week, we kind of just fold our arms and stand back as a critic. And we begin to, to criticize everything and everyone. And so, for example, you know, we, we come into church and we begin to, to criticize what's going on. Ah, oh, that, that song was too slow. That sermon was too long. Or just as dangerous on the other end, we think, man, I'm really glad we sang that song. That was a good song because that's one of my favorites. Or that sermon was entertaining. And Paul says that's a dangerous place to be because the service isn't about you. The service is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the problem you have is you are evaluating the service and you are evaluating the church staff because you think that you own them because you hired them. But what do you have that you did not receive? 
And if it is the Lord who called them to this church, if it is the Lord who sent them to this church, you are not the one who ultimately sits in judgment upon them. They do not ultimately answer to you. They answer to me. And so you ought to ask yourself, you know, when I, when I go to church on Sunday, am I coming to exalt the Savior or to evaluate the staff? You know, what is the posture of my heart? Because the church in Corinth has split into factions. There's a faction that follows Paul. There's a faction that follows Apollos. There's a faction that follows Peter. There's a faction following the current leaders. And they're all pointing fingers at one another because they have been evaluating various staff members, pastors, and leaders based on the wrong criteria. And it's tearing the church apart. But not only does it change the way we enter into church and we think about the body, it changes the way we think about ourselves. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to be able to say with the Apostle Paul in verse 3, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. Can you say that with a straight face? It's a very small thing that I would be judged by other people. (laughs) Now notice, Paul doesn't say it's no thing. The, The evaluations of others does matter, but it's a small thing to him because he understands the commendation he's looking for is not the commendation of other people. It is the commendation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And is that true of you? Or are you, are you always striving for, for more money? Are you always striving for a more attractive body? Are you always striving to win the election or to, you know, get that promotion, be placed on this board because you want to be seen as successful in the evaluation of others? And so you would say, man, it's not a small thing for me that others are looking in my life and judging me. It's a, it's a big thing. And Paul says the way you can be freed from the fear of man, the way you can be uh, set free to, to live life with joy is not the way the world says to do it. The world says, hey, all you got to do is you do you. You know, you just identify who you are, what your life is about, and you go about that. You don't care what anybody else thinks, and you'll find that freedom. And that is a lie from the pit of hell, and we all know it. And the reason we all know it is because however you identify yourself and your purpose, whether it's, you know, I'm going to be a successful baseball player, or I'm going to be a gracious and a hospitable host, or I'm the kind of person that makes everyone laugh, whatever it is, not only do you say this is who I am, but you want other people to affirm that as well. And without someone else giving their sign and seal of affirmation of who you think you are, you don't feel like your life has worth and value. And so the only way you and I can be set free to have this kind of freedom in life is to to seek not to live on our own terms, but as verse 1 says, to be regarded as servants of Christ, seeking simply to follow him faithfully. That's where freedom is found. Because the headlines often don't tell the whole story. They didn't with Jesus, they didn't with the Apostle Paul, and they will not with you and me. But one day the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And when he does, what has been done in secret will be revealed. The motives of every heart will be on display. And it's then that I want to receive that commendation. 
well done, good and faithful servant. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that we would be so shaped by the gospel that we would see that every good thing in our lives does not come from us, but comes from your gracious and generous hand. Lord, we pray that would cause us to be an enormously generous people. Father, that it would cause us to have compassionate and merciful hearts. That it would cause us not to pull away from those who are, are facing enormous difficulty, but, Father, to, to move towards them in love. Father, we pray that it would eradicate pride and self-righteousness in our lives and give us in its place humility. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.